So I think there's this intensity of work on a daily basis with the children and to some extent families will see this. But in a larger sense, what they're doing, it's just, it's like it doesn't exist. And so I can imagine that there's um, a bit of a, you know, a, a strange disconnect between this intensity of work and its public invisibility. National Quality Framework, at its most fundamental level, is about positive outcomes for children in their learning and well-being, and raises the bar for the provision of children's services in Australia. But the people who are expected to deliver this reform for Australia, educators, are paid low wages, work in shifts, and often aren't recognised as professionals. Is it time to ask, are we too child-centred in our work, and what does that mean for educators? I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is The Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. This episode, we're joined by Dr Tamara Cumming. Tamara is a lecturer in early childhood studies at Charles Sturt University, Athens. She co-leads the Early Childhood Educators Wellbeing Project and is passionate about educators, their practice and the sustainability of the workforce. Okay, so tomorrow we're tackling, I think, a deliberately provocative topic today, which is that, that concept of child-centred and is it possible that as a sector we've maybe gone too far in that direction? But I think before we obviously talk about that, we might need to have a bit of a discussion about do we have a definition of child-centred when we talk about child-centred? You know, what does that mean to you as a you know researcher and you know practitioner? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Liam. Well, and I think I think that's um, part of the difficulty is that child-centred is a word that people probably have. Um, a good understanding of, but that understanding is based, like, comes from lots of different sources. So, um, you know, when I think about child-centeredness, I think of it in a positive way. I think about it as um, attending to and prioritising possibly the interests and needs of children in planning for practice. Um, I think about it as respecting children's lead in play and also that sometimes being child-centred means that the the grown-up, uh, you know, in a practitioner sense, is um, not at the centre of the play. They don't need to be guiding it. It, you know, it, sometimes it can be about what children are doing by themselves or with each other. So I guess that's that's how I see it from a practice perspective. But before I give you a chance to speak, <laughs> I also wanted to say, in thinking about it, I think that there's the that practice understanding, and there's also the politics of the word, and I I think that's probably um, the more controversial side of it oh absolutely i tomorrow i knew you'd be a fantastic guest when you're bringing politics into it even before <laughs> i've had the chance to look I, I i think you're absolutely right and i think the the one of the interesting parts of this discussion is going to be is i think neither of us would disagree that the term isn't positive but i think it's about exactly mm -hmm. what, what those repercussions are. i think when i sort of yeah. thought about that and i sort of sent this through as the first thing we were going to discuss i you know it, i don't know if we have a you know a sector approved definition mm -hmm. of this but i sort mm -hmm. of thought about it in terms of i think it's as a response to a particular way of how um, probably particularly early education but maybe particularly services um, maybe more generally how 
children, uh, services to children were delivered in the past, which was you know, very much not child-centred. It was very mm. much adult focus. And I think, you know, as an example, mm-hmm. and this might be slightly unfair, but, you know, I even think back to the, my earliest days as an educator when we were doing, you know, checklists of children development mm-hmm. and, and all those kind of things, and they were... You know that that I, you know that's probably as an opposite of child centred. That's far more about an adult view of where children's development are, and that you know there's there's sort of no space for the voice of the child there. So mm. I think it, it, it's almost and um, we sort of talk. I think I think I think we go through these cycles in the sector where we respond to a particular thing. I think um, mm. I think I talked about this in last fortnight's episode, which was Alma Fleet calls this you know the pendulum swinging back and mm. forth. But this mm. idea of child centred, which is a a positive thing and is but kind of maybe is a response to maybe we weren't so child centred previously. Yeah. Yeah. I look I think that's true. And I think in these days where I hear from a lot of practitioners concerns about um, you know, school readiness becoming a thing, that there's a real risk that the pendulum you know, probably in a lot of places or at some times of the year or, you know, in all sorts of ways, is swinging towards being um teacher-centred in that it's about the teacher's agenda um, and that's not all, that's certainly not to blame teachers um, and educators but just that there can be those pressures that make people feel that things have to swing a certain way but what I what I really want to grab hold of there Liam and, and I think Alma's description is really interesting is if you think about a pendulum it, it, you know there's the there's the downward and the upward sweep but at either end of it there's um there are opposites and I think this is where we uh, you know um, get into the politics of what's child-centered because if words like child are really loaded and um, you know if you think of mother and child or or parent and child it's it's sort of like like an essentialist um, um, binary that that there are these two bodies that they're intricately connected but they're also um, seen as opposites in some way and I think that's how it is with educators and children that you there's sort of this idea that it has to swing only between being educator centered or child centered you know we forget about the sweep in the middle that's a really good point, Tamara. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that yeah, where, where this comes down to the discussion in particular when we think about maybe what this looks like in practice, it is about the mm. interplay of those two things and it's not as mm. simple as saying we're, we're you know, in a particular moment we're either being child-centred or mm. educator-centred. Yeah, really good point. Well, maybe we can want to think about it in terms of where the – the Australian sector is at the moment. I think we have mm. to probably maybe talk about the National Quality Framework. So this was mm. you know, a big reform piece that brought brought in a whole bunch of um, uh, you know obviously different approaches in states and territories, but obviously at a crucial level gave us the National Quality Standard and the Early Years Learning Framework. And we should point mm. out that you know Element One Point One Point Two is actually called Child Centred, and it mm. says each child's current knowledge, strengths, ideas, culture, abilities, mm. and interests are the foundation of the program. So I think mm. I don't I, you know I wouldn't call that a definition. But I think the NQS yeah. is sort of getting, yeah, you know, is, is getting to a point there around thinking, uh, what are we, what views are we taking in when we think about what we're planning for children? But also, yeah. the early years learning framework, you know, has a view that you know, we should have high expectations of children, that we should be consulting mm. with children. Mm. Um, so, in, in a very in a broad sense, Tamara, do, do you think mm. um, 
uh, or, or how do you think or do you think that the introduction of the NQF has sort of changed this idea of what child centre practice is in the sector? Mm. I think that, uh, you know, and I think that that description in the NQF is is a really good guide to um, what we imagine good practice might might look like. Um, I don't, I, I think that probably educators have always worked with those kinds of interests at heart. But I think where the trickiness comes in is that from a from a Western perspective and from the kinds of education, formal education that we've all had, whether that's been at TAFE or at uni, um, you know, we tend to think in binaries. Um, and so, Giving giving that idea, even though the NQF um, does is a lot more open and is a lot more respectful, I think, to educators in terms of um, allowing for practice wisdom and allowing for almost um, the creativity in practice that I think is so appealing to people um, as part of their work. I think that to some extent, it's it's almost been a bit confusing. We we find sometimes with our students um, as they're going on prac that they they aren't quite sure where to put themselves because they've got these guidelines that say, well, this is what we do. This is we put child children at the centre, and um, you know we follow their interests. But th- this there's not a, a strong sense of what the what the educators need to do, how they should be, what, what the, do you know what I mean, where they are in a ch- in child-centric practice. And I, I actually wonder if it's not, again, it's not that the ideas are problematic, it's that the word, that the term we're using to describe this way of approaching practice is problematic because from from a Western perspective, it evokes such a strong binary. You know, it evokes this idea that to be child-centred means that you mustn't be um, um, interested in the, the 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 educators. You can only be child-centred or something else. Um, you know, there's no halfway point, like that sweep of the pendulum. And I think that's something that we really need to challenge, that idea that, it, um, that being child-centred only means uh, or doesn't have a strong enough place for the educator because maybe there's a role for both things you know maybe it's more of a dance and an interplay than just always kind of you know people interpreting it to mean that it's about children doing their own thing or doing what they want you know I think that it's about what the word child and centered as well what what those words can bring up for us yeah, absolutely. I mean, God, I've got my list of questions here tomorrow. Everything you say, oh. I have five more questions to, to oh. follow. I'm, I, we should say we, we, we touched on this topic in an interview. Mm. I, I can't remember the episode um, last year when we were talking about mm. the, the, the Wellbeing Project you're part of. Mm. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're definitely going to touch on that a bit later. But I, mm. I think as soon as we hung up, I said, tomorrow we need to do this as a full mm. episode because there's so mm. much here to dig into those. Yeah. I think you're, the, the, you're absolutely right that one of the problems is exactly so because we tend to think in binary ways yeah. we whether we i don't think we consciously think this but we hear child centered and we go well you know what what does that not look like or mm. what is the, when, when that's not happening what does that look like but because the child centered if we look at it from a from a nqs perspective child centered is in quality area one which we know is one of the most challenging uh, areas of the national quality standard to to meet we know it's the the quality area that's that's most likely to be rated uh, not met that mm. I think we 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 worry about how do we prove we're being child centered, mm. mm. and do we fall back on maybe 
Um, I don't want to use the word tokenistic because I think that's used mm-hmm. to sort of beat educators over the head way yeah. too much in the sector. Yeah, we don't but, want to do that. Yeah, but do mm-hmm. we do it in ways that we're going, well, I just need to kind of prove this for the assessor. So we do things like, you know, oh, but look in my documentation, I've got children's voices and, you know, look, mm-hmm. we, yeah, we we have a group time where I ask children what they think. And um, that's not to say those practices aren't child-centred, but I think mm-hmm. what the NQS is is doing is asking us to think deeper about that. But mm-hmm. as you said, is there guidance for, for educators mm-hmm. on what that can or does look like is there guidance for where they fit into that that idea of mm. child centered and um, yeah. I don't think there are easy answers for those questions but no. I think one of the things that I think we'll get into in a little bit is this idea that the the goals and the aspirations or even the guidance of the national quality framework isn't the issue and I talk a lot about mm. this when we talk about regulation and red tape where people say I'm mm. drowning in it and it's too hard my mm. response is well you know it's not that my view is not that it's 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 overregulated or there's too much red tape. Is that there's not enough support mm. around that for people to engage in with it? And yeah. is that maybe an idea here that is not that the the goals of being child centred are an issue? And I and I would mm. certainly argue they're not. Mm. Mm. Is it that there isn't enough really support for people to at a basic level engage with the NQF guidance on this, or even just as educators enact this this principle of being child centred? Yeah, look, I I completely agree with you, and I think it's I think it goes again, and, and this is my perspective because you know I tend to see things this way, but I really think that you know that the, this binary view of things has got so much to do with it because um, I just quickly lost my train of thought, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That happens a lot on this show tomorrow. <laughs> Why don't we do, um, we do we do do we want to yes. get into that idea of maybe what this can or look like in in practice for educators so if we think about um child-centered practice what, what you know what what kind of things does that sort of evoke for you in terms of in classrooms with, with children what's what is it what sort of things might you might you see if, if people are acting in a particular child-centered way i guess you know i think a lot of it comes down to doing educators doing their best to be present to be to see themselves as part of what's going on rather than um, observing it or um, managing it or controlling it. And I, I don't mean that in a naive way. You know, I, as although I'm an academic now, I, I worked for two years in a preschool as a childcare worker. Um, and so I, I do appreciate what it means to, to try and uh, blend yourself with. Um, and Pillow has a really lovely way of talking about this, which is joining joining your interests to those of the child, and and that creates another space. Um, and I guess it's that's quite I, I find that quite a nice way of thinking about it. That it's not about um, I I stay separate as a person, and there's the child, and I do what the child wants to do. But I'm a person, you know, as an educator, I'm an educator with my interests and knowledge and expertise and emotions, and I join that to what the child is interested in, and together we produce something else. Um, but in that in that dynamic of the two, you know, sort of sets of self and knowledge and all of those that mixture of things you know we try to let the child be the guide but to me that gives a more the the way I've described it I, I think gives a more active role to to what an educator is doing so so they're attending closely and listening and joining joining with the child to 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 do something else um and sometimes that can just be you know if it's children doing something 
you're joining your attention with theirs and you're waiting for the moment to, um, you know, to intervene if it's needed or to add something. Um, I guess to me, when I when I think back, I, I can remember moments where I managed to really get into that space. Um, it's not to say that that's easy, but I think, I think in a way that's what makes child, the, a child-centred way of doing things quite tricky because it requires so much of educators and, and so much is already required of educators. <laughs> and, and yet I think people would love to just be able to do that part of practice. You know, I think, I think that's what educators live for um, in their practice. But there are a lot of other things that can get in the way and... Um, I don't really know what the answer to that is. That I think the answer is to keep talking and trying to advocate to make it clear how complex the, the work of educators is and to try and get some of this other stuff out of the way so people can do the, the job that they want to do. Yeah, and that we know is the most important in terms Absolutely. of outcomes for children. So we know that the, right. the actual engagement with children is what leads to learning and wellbeing outcomes Yeah, yeah for, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, in, in terms of thinking about some of that stuff tomorrow, so I think we've deliberately, for the first part of this conversation, sort of kept it at that um, NQF practice um, mm. positive level. But I think what we want to do now is get into some of the meaty stuff, which I've been mm -hmm. very much looking forward to talking to you about. Mm. So <laughs> the way I've – so I've uh, – you know, even just personally and professionally, I've been on a bit of a journey over this in the last two or three years where I've been thinking, um, dare I say critically reflecting, about the state of the sector and where educators sit in the system. And I think I've probably always thought that there's been a missing piece here. So if I think back to the introduction of the National Quality Framework, um, which we sh which is rightly hailed and was a significant policy achievement mm -hmm. for um, the, the Labor government at the time, the way I've always sort of seen it is that, you know, we kind of, there was a really good piece on quality, which was the, you know, the National mm -hmm. Quality Framework. Um, there was also some policy setting work, which wasn't directly part of the NQF, but there was some policy work around the childcare benefit and the childcare rebate, which tried to address some of the um, uh, you know, access for, for for families to get to mm. and, and children, um, mm. and there was some work around the communicating of the NQF to families. The missing piece for me was always educators. Now there was yeah. professional development available, but there was no sort of structured strategy just to to support educators to essentially deliver mm. this this goal. For the goal of the NQF is better outcomes mm. for children at, at its most mm. fundamental level. Now, the mm. people delivering that are not the policymakers. They're not mm. people like me sitting in my office at, at Northside. They're the educators actually working with children. I do think they were a really missing piece, but I've been thinking even more about that over the last few years. And the way I've worded this as, I, as I've sent it to you, Tamara, to discuss, mm. and I've done this very deliberately, is... This idea of being child-centred and delivering mm. outcomes for, for an entire you know generation of young children in mm. Australia, what does it cost educators mm. to do this? And I use that term really deliberately because I think we sometimes we can. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but we can mm. not take. We, we can we can say you know, the extreme example is you know education should do it for the love of it. It's working with children. Yeah. It's lovely. It's fun. You know, there's mm. nothing that you know. Mm. I think that may be a dominant community view, and it might certainly be a dominant view in um, in, in, in politicians' minds. But mm. from a and particularly thinking about the work you do in the ed early educator well-being space, Tamara, mm -hmm. um, you know, how would you answer that question? What does it cost educators? What are we asking of educators here what, for this yeah. outcome? What is this costing the people? And we should specify here, overwhelmingly women. Yes. What are we? What are we? What is this costing them? 
Yeah. Well, look, I think it's costing them so many things. And at a very um, sort of big picture level, like in, in our project, um, myself and Sandy and Helen would argue that it's costing educators their visibility as professionals and even as people. Um, before I follow that idea, can I just I just want to go back to something you said about, you know, the time as the um, early childhood reform agenda was getting up. And there was a, a really great document that um, gave a lot of us a bit of hope that something would change and that was calling for um, early childhood workforce strategies but really nothing much has come out of that apart from um, you know a continued emphasis on qualifications which are of course important but it, it's as if that was enough uh, you, you know and I don't I mean you have to go into I think a sort of historical policy analysis to understand why policymakers don't seem to understand what it is that educators do and why it qualifications aren't enough and why other kinds of support are needed. But in short, um, you know, preaching to the converted, it's really complex work. And that is not a dominant message. We still and and I'm not sure if we I was going to say we still have this idea, like you've just said that and it suits politicians to think that, oh, you know, at the heart of it, it doesn't really matter if they're not paid properly, because it's such lovely work. And it's this, you know, and it's so idealized. And, um, and, and it just it, maybe it is some of those things some of the time, but that isn't absolutely not um, the, should, the reality of well, early should, childhood practice most of the time. Well, we should maybe also be really honest here, Tamara, is that mm. historically at least, and mm. probably maybe with the current government, the the uh, people making the decisions about mm. this stuff are predominantly mm. old men who mm. would have had people doing the, uh, the the childcare and inverted commas for them or even engaging in the early education. They would have, they may not have been as engaged in that as you know um we now have you know we've had people like kate ellis we've got amanda rishworth um uh, engaged in this space who i think have viewed this very differently but that's mm. that's definitely a component of this isn't it is that mm. that that's that that work is just not viewed and valued by those kinds of people no but i you know it's interesting sorry this is a slight digression but if you think now the kind of people you know the, the politicians rather than the policy makers in the bureaucrats um probably have got more experience now of young children than they would have when, you know, 10, 15 years ago. They've probably now, their own children, if they have them, have had children and they're involved in their what's happening for their grandchildren. They're seeing what it's like to try and get a place and how much it costs and, um, uh, you know, going to the service and seeing that you don't have the same people all the time because people get sick or because people are leaving. And, you know, all of those issues are probably a lot more real to a lot more of those older men in particular than they would have been 15 years ago um so yeah you know anyway there's another reason to revisit the workforce agenda but um i think in terms of what it costs educators to do this um i think there's a real sense that they're what they're doing just isn't visible. And I, so I think there's this intensity of work on a daily basis with the children and to some extent families will see this. But in a larger sense, what they're doing, it's just, it's like it doesn't exist. And so I can imagine that there's um, a bit of a, you know, a, a strange disconnect between this intensity of work and its public invisibility. So that that's at one level. Um, but in concrete terms... Um, it can cost educators families if because, as we know, it, um, the work isn't paid especially well, particularly for those um, 
um, who don't have a degree. Um, so, in fact, educators are giving their all to support the needs of children, but their own families may be suffering materially because of that choice they've made to um, to to do this with for their work. Um, it can also it can also cost educators their health. Um, just recently, in our Equip project, we've been looking at some really quite alarming data from um, iCare, which is the New South Wales Workers' Compensation, um, the main workers' compensation body, that's showing that there are higher levels of injury, some types of injury in our sector than there are in construction. So, you know, so, so that's costing educators, obviously, personally. It's costing services. It's costing organisations. And, and, of course, the you know, because of the way the, the sector's funded, when there are higher costs that um, an organisation or an individual business owner has to meet, then those things are going to be passed down to families. So it, I think what we need to start to do is recognise, firstly recognise that there are costs to educators and also understand that because we require, because we depend on educators, you know, to to, to be doing um the 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 relational work that that is going to be damaged if they're not well so the experiences and the outcomes for children are bound to suffer that doesn't mean we blame the educators and it doesn't mean we demonize the parents and the children it means that these people are all interrelated and we've got to think about a system that supports everybody so um we don't necessarily want the pendulum to swing back to being educator or teacher-centred in that kind of school readiness sense, we, we, want, we want to accept that, you know, there's a deep interrelationship of people. And so we need to consider everybody's um, well, well-being, I suppose. What, what is it that allows educators to, to be well and to thrive because it's their workplace and, really importantly, because that is going to get the highest quality experiences and outcomes for children? Well, and also you would think it, surely that should just be a fundamental right of any worker in Australia, Absolutely. even if we just think yeah. separately to to you know the the importance of high quality early education and how important educators are in that we mm. we seem to i remember um one of the earliest sort of articles i ever wrote that got um sort of picked up nationally um by the abc and I, i've mm. always been glad that was the first one because it had a, a, a sort of catalyst moment for me where i said you mm. know if we look back at the history of early education you know or, or what used to be childcare provision you know mm. it essentially came from this idea that um uh, it was very uh, not even probably not even educator centred, let alone child centred, mm. but very much workforce participation centred. Mm. Um, and we can argue that's maybe still a, a big policy driver now, mm. but it was very much about um, in, ensuring that women could get back into the workforce, which as a feminist goal is laudable. And I yes. think we've, you know, it's, it's easy to look back and go, well, why aren't we thinking about children? That just wasn't the policy discussion at the mm. time. But mm. my what what I said in the article was we we created the, the, these policy settings to help um, overcome you know institutional sexism and and, and ensure mm. that women could access the workforce. But to do mm. that, we've created this workforce underclass of other women to yeah. to and that that to me has just always baffled me as a as a structural mm. um, issue. And we should you know this isn't mm. necessarily just about Australia, but it it does because we also overlay things like the childcare subsidy and the work activity test. It does seem to be particularly pointy you know that's a very technical term tomorrow but it's particularly <laughs> it's particularly yeah. you know yeah. acute in australia so it's part of this yeah. as well tomorrow and again i think yeah. i know what your answer is going to be is that we kind of just expect so we we know that, that the job is demanding 
you know, mm. I've, I've always sort of said it's, it's physically demanding, it's emotionally mm-hmm. demanding, and um, it's um, mentally demanding. It's, it's incredibly mm. complex. Is part of the problem we just expect kind of women to do that work and not complain about it? Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But, you know, I think even I, – I think that there's – you. You can't remove the gendered nature of the discussion, and no, and it frustrates you know, me tomorrow when it's taken yeah, out, and it's something that exactly. I think needs to. Yeah. I, I think sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I, no, I, 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 I think one of the there's almost like two, um, you know, it's like the the third rail of Paul. You know, there's a certain thing you, you, you sort of can't touch. We have we have several of those. When any of these discussions, when I have them, I'm on panels occasionally, or when I talk with people, it's almost like you're not allowed to mention the either of the two W words, which is women mm. or wages. You're not allowed mm. to talk about the fact that people are underpaid. It's almost like a dirty topic. And we mm. shouldn't really be getting to the fact that, that the reason they're underpaid is because they're women. We want yeah. to have all these discussions about workforce strategies and qualifications, as you said, and all this other mm. stuff, whereas we can't go, this stuff's actually not that complicated. We, it's, no. it's because they're women and we just don't yeah. want to pay them well for the for what we think of as women's uh, work. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in, a, in an article myself and... Um, my colleagues from Equip have, have recently written. We we also make the point, which feels really uncomfortable to say, but that it's in relation to educators' well-being is one of the reasons that it's so invisible that women's well-being isn't in in general is not valued as highly. You know, we're just we're just supposed to get on with it. Um, and I think that regardless of who the educator is that you're talking about and whether you know how they identify from a gender perspective the the feminized discourses around the work um definitely affect the way that it's treated from a policy perspective we'll be right back are you listening to our exploring the nqs series if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon, you're not only helping to keep the show going, you'll also get access to an extra podcast where I explore every element of the national quality standard one at a time. It's a great way to get yourself up to speed with the NQS, uh, consider different perspectives and grow your own professional development. Each episode is only 15 minutes and we've just finished Quality Area 4 Staffing Arrangements. Just head to earlyeducationshow.com and click support the show in the menu to sign up and start listening for as little as $1 a month. With more than 100 episodes under our belt, we're now turning to our wonderful listeners for ideas and topics for future episodes. If you're doing something amazing in the sector, know someone who is, or really just want to hear us tackle a particular sector issue, just head to earlyeducationshow.com and click Pitch an Idea. All right, back to the show. Just briefly, I, I, I recently went to Denmark to talk with with some teacher educators and um, practitioners there, and I was um, really interested in the way that they do things and that it was so much more. And again, I've lost my train of thought. Sorry, Liam. <laughs> oh, this you, has come you, up for You me. caught that train to Denmark, Tamara. You I talking. caught the train to Denmark. And, you know, oh, the, the trip really, I think reiterated to me why it's so important that the quality of services is um, a significant thing. And, you know, I guess that links back to your comments about why in the 70s when childcare was becoming um, a really uh, strong feminist demand so that women could could go to work, um, why um, 
that that sort of tended to emphasize the children at the and then you ended up with the underclass of the women who would do the child caring you know they weren't looked after properly and and the quality of the services for children weren't properly acknowledged either so it's but it's so much about the binary you know it's so much about we we um, can only fight for this group at the expense of another yes. and yes. so we we need to um, acknowledge what the parties are what is happening how people and I think that's where um, you know critical thinking is so important critical perspectives who whose agendas does this serve who is being um, privileged who is being disadvantaged and you know what are the factors that are involved in that and I think maybe we occasionally get to those discussions now in in politics and i think we're further along the path than we were 10 years ago um but i think this issue of child-centeredness isn't going away and um i think you know i think it's something that's going to occupy people whether they're involved in um pre-service education, in professional development, in practice, in research, because until we really make educators visible, we make practice visible, we we really um, uh, make visible what it means to be a professional in the field in the very many different ways that that can be, um, I think I think we're going to struggle. We, we need to shift the ground and ask different questions, not just uh, is it right or wrong to be child-centred, but how can we be child-centred in a way that still gives an active role to educators or what is educators' role in child-centred planning, you know? It's, it's different questions. It's not necessarily... Either going or. back to that, yeah, yeah. The, to that pendulum and, you know, having to end up at one end or the other. Well, surely, you know, part of the solution, I think, has to be, and this is largely a semantic point, and I don't have, you know, a good idea for how to translate it, that this into, you know, policy or practice. And it would have been good if Lisa or Leanne were here who are better at those things. But surely part of it is, is about, is, is, as you said, breaking down that binary and realising that, um child-centred practice is supporting educators, that's supporting educators to be in, in good states of well-being mm. and mental health and, and an ability to reflect on their work is actually child-centred practice because it leads yes. to better outcomes for children. But I guess how you sort of translate that, yeah. you know, that kind of mm-hmm. higher point into, you know, better outcomes for educators yeah. is where it gets tricky, I guess. It, it does. But, you know, I take heart from the fact that now we hear politicians on the TV and on the radio saying early childhood education yeah. rather than childcare. And I think advocates have done a fantastic job in in educating um, ministers and shadow ministers and advisors about why that matters. And I think we really need to keep attending to the language that um, not just politicians use, but also that we use. Yeah, and well, thinking, yeah. and, you know, and thinking about um, what we really mean by that. Um, I, I think that that they're really important issues. But I think if we can get politicians, that like we've got politicians to understand um, through lots of hard work by advocates, then we can also challenge and change the thinking that's keeping educators and their well-being um, invisible. You know, it's it's interesting. It's just not in any policy guidelines. Um, I wanted to mention this before when you mentioned the NQF um, and the EYLF that, you know, educators and their well-being, it's it's just sort of like this amorphous something is doing the practice. <laughs> yes, know, exactly. Educators right. will. But there's, 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 <laughs> there's a conveyor a, belt of them where we just sort of unwrap is, them and, and, and send them out. Yeah, it's deeply disembodied. 
you know it's just like these practices are done by people but there's no substance to an understanding of the people um you know i think i I think that's a really big problem i think that's a actually i hadn't thought about that's actually a really good point well i I think that concept of visibility is 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 critical here tomorrow and i think you've hit on one of the key concepts here so and look, and you may have to be far more diplomatic about this than, than I will be. But I've, what I'm, what, and I haven't put this in the list of topics we're going to discuss tonight. So I'm putting you on the spot a bit tomorrow. But mm-hmm. one of the, what's fascinated me about the last few years of the discourse here is that, at the same time as I think we're starting to maybe really question, you know, our educators getting a good deal here in terms of, or it's not about a good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about can the outcomes we're after for children actually be met when we treat educators this way and can we expect edu- can we expect more and more of educators in terms of continuous improvement in terms of being better learning more doing more when mm. they are industrially treated this way mm-hmm. now at the same time as i think well i hope or at least i personally have been having that discussion and, and having that discussion yeah. with you in terms of emails and other yeah. conversations tomorrow mm-hmm. as we're having that discussion there has also been this kind of rise of and, and again, you can be far more diplomatic. So this is entirely my view, but it's almost this cult of well-being. So we talk about well-being oh, far yes. more than I ever remember talking about it. But to me, it is so superficial and borderline yeah. insulting the way it's the way it's talked yeah. about, which is um, that the educators' situations are what they are, and you just have to learn to cope with it. And that yeah. and that means whether you, you'll have large providers. You know, giving educators a you know a, a voucher for for ten minutes of yoga or something, or giving mm-hmm. them a subscription to an app that teaches them how to breathe. Or what I find most appalling at all is setting up this yearly early childhood educators' day, which is promoted as this thing where families say a nice thing about an educator. And to mm-hmm. me, unless that nice thing is, can you please strike and get a better deal for get get better wages, mm-hmm. or can you demand more PD, or can you do other? Mm-hmm. I I really don't. These to me seem really tokenistic, and they seem like like, um, you know, large providers sort of ab- almost absolving themselves of their their culpability of this. And, and, mm. and so this is meant to be an interview tomorrow and I'm just talking mm. about I, I love these conversations with you. But the, it, my thinking on this in, in terms of my role, which is, I, you know, I work in a, in a centre support role. I don't work in a classroom anymore. Mm. Um, my how – what's my ethical culpability mm. here around in asking fantastic outcomes for – children but i'm asking you know the people we've been talking about through this entire podcast i'm kind of sitting there asking educators to do this what's the mm-hmm. i've got to wrap this up with a question i guess what's the what would you say is the role of you know people in you know either senior leadership roles or, or providers in mm-hmm. in tackling this in some way whether it's political whether it's advocacy mm-hmm. or whether it's just at least standing up for educators yeah for sure yeah so uh, yes to everything that you said um <laughs> You know, which I still thought was fairly diplomatic. And um, I have to say, I think it's not always just the big providers who are um, doing this because, you know, I think my colleague Helen Logan's recently done some research with a range of organisations and so many of them are really trying to attend to educators' wellbeing. And, you know, sorry to repeat myself, but part of the reason that organisations of any size are having a problem getting this right is because it's so invisible, because we don't know what it is. <laughs> we <Yeah>. don't really <laughs> yeah. we don't really understand what the problems are 
with educators' well-being. So what organisations and businesses are doing is seeing someone's service and, and that service says, here, this is going to help your educators' well-being. So they buy that, they plug it into their yep. educators, they tick the box and, you know, the, the, it, it's not that they know that there's more they could do and they're not doing it. That's what is considered adequate. Yep. Now, this, like, you know, this is another whole interview, right? So... <laughs> This is where I think it's really interesting to think about some of the work that's done in business. And like, I'm really cautious about saying this because, you know, we're, we're all still suffering the, the shadow of, um, you know, uh, big services not doing the right thing by children and families back from the early 2000s yeah. uh, when I say businesses. But, you know, to my surprise, when I'm doing research, I, I quite often find that there are some really interesting respectful ways that organizations have engaged in understanding their employees well-being and doing something about it and you know and one of the things is that for business owners and organizations if you want to talk about the bottom line um, there is a really strong business case for attending to your employees well-being so apart from the fact that the productivity increases are going to be children's experiences and outcomes and I am not commodifying you know <laughs> trying to commodify children or the, anything like that but Sometimes if we take some of those ideas and translate them and think carefully about the ethics, um, they, you know, there can be some really good ideas there. But, you know, as you'd know from other interviews we've done in, in our research, what we're trying to do is to really understand the whole the holistic picture of educators well-being so that is not just happiness. And like you, Liam, like I, I get a bit cranky yes, when yes. people start talking only about positive psychology as if positive psychology is going to fix every problem. Now, I'm not at all anti-positive psychology, but there are conditions that mean that people are, they just can't do it. That that could be that it's not just the time and the impracticality of some, um, you know, things to do with uh, like mindfulness apps. You know, I, I had a bit of a thing about this on the Equip Facebook page recently, that that well-being is not a commodity. It is not something that you can fix with a one-off fruit box and a yoga lesson. It's It's <laughs> got to be, this, is, this comes from management literature. It's got to be an ongoing dialogue yeah. between the organisation, whether that's a single business owner or it's one of the, you know, our, our really big service providers and their educators to understand what is going on with well-being what is educators physiological health what what is you know what is their blood pressure why is their blood pressure high some of this stuff comes from um you know i guess the personal set part of their lives but to do with work what what are the things to do with their work that are impacting on their physiological well-being um if there is no furniture that is appropriate for educators to sit on um or to um to use to assist them to lift or um, there are awkward corners or all of the things that make for occupational health and safety. Um, plus noise is another big thing <laughs> that is beginning to be looked at. You know, these are the things, you know what, it's not very interesting for, you know, it's not as interesting as a fruit box and your yoga lesson, no. but it's, it's, that's what it is. It's looking at it, it's looking at your educators, it's looking at the place they work as an adult work environment and what rights they have to a safe environment that 
that promotes their health, God forbid, promotes it, not just prevents problems, <laughs> yeah, that's right. and, and that supports them to thrive as professionals. That's part of well-being as well. And then there's their psychological well-being, and that's, of course, going to be things like um, job satisfaction. But again, sort of just to talk about our study briefly, we've got this really interesting paradox that most of the educators, like over 85%, really satisfied with their work. At the same time, they are really burned out. And normally with this scale of burnout, um, you'd see that, you know, it all goes in the one direction. Once you start, you've got emotional exhaustion and you don't feel like you're doing your job very well, you, you're also um, going to have low job satisfaction, but that's not what it's like for educators. So there's something else going on. But there's just so much in when you really commit to the idea of well-being and what's involved and thinking about it, it it's it's a bit inconvenient, you know. It's, <laughs> it's probably going to be costly. It probably means that, everyone's going to need to do some work um, and put some money in. And, well, you know, hopefully not so much the educators because yeah. they're paying for enough. <laughs> but the organisation itself has to commit to doing what it can to see that it's a two-way street, you know. And, and that, I think, links to the ethics of what you're talking about, um, that as someone in a centre support role, how much can you ask of educators without saying, well, this is what we're going to do to support, not just support you, but this is how we're going to try and change the environment or change the way we do things so that your well-being is better supported. You know, it's it's got to be those things because otherwise it's going to be tokenistic, it's momentary, it's not going to make a sustained difference to the things that are problematic from a business perspective as well as from a experience as an outcomes perspective. Absolutely. Oh, Tamara, there's so much there. You're okay if we just keep recording to about midnight? Is that, is that, yeah, that yeah, that's, that's fine? fine. That's fine. All good. All good. <laughs> Apologies for the four hour episode, everyone. But look, I, there there is so much there, Tamara, I want to pick up. And I think I've almost forgot five of the things I wanted to pick up on because there's now 10 other things that are crowding my head. But Absolutely. The, the, the corporatization, this sort of well-being thing, which is, you know, either used as a marketing tactic to bring educators in or to, um, you know, it just to sort of say that it, it, we can't change, we, you know, you, your situation isn't the problem, it's your attitude to it, which, you know, just infuriates me and, I've, and, and to be fair I've seen this outside of the early education sector and bizarrely I've seen this in community service organisations that often work with people you know with mental health issues and the idea that you turn to those people and go well if you could just choose to be happier and more productive um, yeah. kind of infuriates me this, the second mm-hmm. thing is that idea of what's always kind of frustrated me about this discussion is we we get this so simply with children so anyone who's studying this typical three knows that the idea of working with children and supporting their emotional well-being is not just about making them happy all the time that's actually that's poor practice that's actually it's about supporting you know uh children to engage with you know their their moments of happiness and sadness and and how they can affect and, and how we can affect their situation but then we turn around with educators and go well, if you could just be a bit less stressed, that would be great, and you know, mm-hmm. might might help our occupancy percentage go up on yeah. next month's spreadsheet. That 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 just yeah. kind of infuriates me. But the this is the really, I think, meaty stuff where we're talking about, um, you know, tens of thousands of educators across, hundreds of thousands of educators, sorry, I should say, across the country who are working towards this um, societal goal, which is positive, which is better outcomes for children mm. in the first five years. So I guess, you know, being conscious of time is not actually going to keep you here till, till midnight, even though mm-hmm. I would love to keep talking about this. Um, is 
I, let's ask the, and this is probably what the episode will be called. So people have probably been waiting, you know, 45 minutes to hear me put this direct question to you. Are we, in terms of everything we talked about, in terms of how we would define child centered or how we would define educator centered, mm-hmm. and I know you're going to pick me up on the binary again, but I guess the <laughs> question has to be are we too child centered mm-hmm. in Australia at the moment? And, and are we not educator centered enough? Yeah, I again, I would say it's better to ask a different question, which is which is not at all about you, Liam. I'm still calling uh, the episode this though tomorrow because yes, that'll, that'll yes. bring people in. Oh, well, absolutely, and and this is yeah, this is the thing. I think um, it's just it, you know, and, and this is at the end of the episode. I'm making this disclaimer that in even talking about this topic, I, I literally have physical discomfort because I would hate to be seen as somebody who is anti-children and who's going, yeah. oh, you know, we have to put the educators first all the time. And But that's that's the power of the binary, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, that's how powerful it is that, that even, you know, people who are decent at critical perspectives and don't you know fear that's how strong the discourse is yeah that we can only have one thing or the other and you know i i i actually don't know i don't know if we are too child-centered but i think that there has to be space where um we we can say that practice is about the educators and the children and it's about other things as well but for the purposes of the discussion we really have to shift the thinking that um, that child-centeredness means it's 100% about the child and nothing about the educator, that um, that there's got to be a, a middle ground and that's what we want to work for. And I think that's what's ethical and that's what's professional um, for, for educators to work towards as well. Um, so I think it's just a matter of, of continuing the conversation. <laughs> and hoping people listen to us. Well, if we, you know, yeah. as we maybe wrap, I think we've, I think we started at sort of the higher level and we talked positively. We've spent probably the last half an hour really getting into some of the, the murky, maybe less positive aspects of this. Do we want to maybe try and bring it up towards the end mm-hmm. so we can we can mm. convince people we were positive the whole way through? But yeah. if we could start to, and again, let's maybe break that dichotomy about being being a balance. I think you, I think both things can rise at the same time, and actually, children's yeah. outcomes are better when we focus more on it. And this is such a cliche, um, and such an obvious thing to say. But um, it's it's a classic example that's used in you know in um, when they do the safety briefing on the airline, they say you know you need to affix your own mask first Absolutely. before you 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 affix it to the child. It's it's so obvious that. When I say are we too child centered, I, I, that's not the issue. I think what we're mm-hmm. we're asking for outcomes for children that can't be delivered, we can't or can't reasonably be expected to be delivered by um, the, the the workforce we currently have. So it's about saying mm-hmm. in order to write to continue to raise the bar on children's outcome, which is critical mm-hmm. and crucial, and children are deserving of that. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things you think at a broader level? And I know this, you know. Your research is still ongoing, particularly in educator well-being, and you'll probably be thinking mm. more specifically about some of things. But looking at the current, you know, context, what are some things we can do to sort of raise um, that that educator focus in in the work we do? How can how can we um, be more educator centred, but at the same time, you know, with with that outcome is that that's not taking anything away from being child centred. Yeah, I think, and you know, I I really. I think agree. I just asked you to solve this entire problem for I us think, tomorrow. I in one question. So if you could done. just figure that um, out for us, that'd be great. I can. I can just offer you a couple of ideas. I don't <laughs> think I could give you the whole box and dice right now. Um, but I, you know, I just I wanted to pick up on the point that you made about asking people to cope with situations that are not reasonable. 
And so, uh, you know, I completely agree with you that you can't just tell people that they have to learn to cope and we'll send you to um, some classes for <laughs> for how to for cope better um, as, as if, what you have to cope with is reasonable because yeah. mostly it, it's not. Um, but what I, I wanted to say is that I think one thing that we can do um, and and I'm sort of, you know, pointing this more to practitioners is to really think about how we think and think about um, what truths we believe about you know, oh, we're, we're not important, nobody thinks we're valuable, um, you know, I don't matter, I've got to put the children first, it doesn't matter how I feel, is is to see all of those as one way of looking at it and that isn't to say you aren't under pressure and there aren't reasons that, you know, the kind of dominant ideas about doing things can, can make you feel that way. But I think that if, if educators can um, really think about how they think about themselves and what child-centred really means. I, I think there's an opportunity for, for teams and, and for groups in, in rooms and across services to, to make a difference to their experience, their everyday work experience, um, by really thinking about what they, what they mean by child-centred and what expectations they're putting on themselves that in fact they may not need to, which which goes back to something you also said earlier, that there's this sort of idea that, oh, the regulation's too heavy and there's too much red tape and there's too much paperwork. And again, I'm not saying that's not true, but um, what else can what else can we do? What does the EYLF make possible? What, you know, how can we move in that and, um, and understand what it is that we want things, how we want things to be, how we understand them. I think going back to ideas of maybe, you know, 15 years ago, the philosophy was talked about a lot more, a, a services philosophy. And I, I think that's really, really important. Understand what you're about and make yourselves visible to yourselves. You know, I, 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 it all sounds a bit trite, but I, I really mean it in a very go back and think about the basics kind of way and don't accept the dominant messages. Identify that, you know, we can um, sometimes feel that there's no choice, but in some of these ways we think about things there can be. Um, and, in you know, with, without structural changes happening, at least we can try and make within our own services um, things more friendly towards educators, uh, make yourselves more visible. And you know, I could go on about that as well, but that, that's my that's my little bit of an answer and how could we change it is do it at the micro level and, and everybody keep working at the macro to change the structural conditions as well. Yeah, I, look, I, I think you're entirely right. I think you, I, I, I know what you mean when you say it sounds a bit trite, but I think the situation mm -hmm. is so invisible, as you said, that you kind of, there's steps that if I, you know I would love this if this was fixed tomorrow. It's clearly not going to be. Yeah. Um, given that this kind of this idea, if we accept it, and if, if the people listening, you know, largely agree with the way we've been talking, this kind of rocks the foundations of the sector because we're kind of yeah. saying what we want in terms of outcomes for children mm. can't actually be delivered, and we're kind of pretending it can. So we kind yeah. of yeah. and that. And that's actually, um, this sounds melodramatic, but that's really shaken me over the last probably, mm -hmm. you know, 18 to 24 months. I've realised, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're sitting on quite shaky foundations here in mm -hmm. terms of the sector and 
you know, it may not cost, but the invisibility of, because educators, I think, were also sort of trained in particular ways um, mm-hmm. to not complain about it because, because the options yeah, they- of complaining to you know, management may or may not be well received, but we certainly don't yeah. want to do that with families. So we don't want families yeah. to know how stressful and how difficult it is. So we kind of put on this brave mm-hmm. face. So I worry that educators are spending their entire time with this mask of everything's yeah. okay on and and, and um, what that means. But sorry, staying positive, Liam, I can do it. I can, yes. I can finish this on a positive. But I think that idea that educators, as you said, even if it's just internally at the moment where they can say, do you know mm. what, this isn't okay yeah. and um, I can acknowledge that and it's not just about my attitude is wrong or it's not that I'm a bad educator or it's mm. not that I can't do this. It's that actually mm. there's a lot that's holding me back from mm. doing this and mm. I can acknowledge that and I can um, raise that. And I think then for for people in um, leadership roles or providers, it's about saying, look, I'm not asking, you know, the, the CEO of the largest organisation in the world to fix this overnight. Of course, they can't. Mm-hmm. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to transfer. You know, we, we could we could we could have pay wage rises for every educator in mm-hmm. the country overnight, but it would cost, you know, family and that that impacts children access. So this again, mm-hmm. that that binary we're stuck in tomorrow, yeah. which I hadn't thought of before, and now I'm going to go away spending a lot of time thinking about. You'll see it everywhere now. I'll see it everywhere. Oh, you'll see it everywhere. Yeah. So that's not fair. But <laughs> the but for for those you know for the, for the leaders in those organisations, what I would challenge them to go is at least talk about this at least acknowledge and at least say we find this really difficult we we are asking a lot of educators we can't fix the structural problems right now but we're going to demand that politicians do and we're going to demand the policy makers do and yeah. we are going to support you know even at a basic level wage wage equity cases before fair work australia we're going to say this is the system we're in and we want to be advocates for educators because they're mm-hmm. you know and and that's a, that, that would you know that would raise the visibility and you know, raise yeah. the visibility which we've been talking about as a big issue um, yeah. But I think exactly to the educators, you know, internally, we need to probably take that step first, which is to say, you know, you're not the crazy one because you're finding this really difficult and challenging and, yeah. and you're tired at the end of the day. Yes, it, it's an almost impossible task that you're being asked to do and you're not being paid very well to do it. So which is not to feel negative. It's, I, you know, I really offer that in as a validation that if you're finding it hard, it's because it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And um and, yeah, it's it's just so difficult because I think people do need support. They need a way to express what's going on and, and also to celebrate the things that are going well, to re- yeah. to remember that there are things that are going well. Um, but, I, what's you know, that, I it's just... That, it's the point you made tomorrow in your research about that I think you said 85% of people are saying they actually love the, the, yes. the, the works and because the, the work there the, there is... This is, you know, these conversations are so tricky because there is no, it, and again, I, I said I was going to end positively and I brought it right down negatively, but there is so much that's positive about this work, the privilege yeah. of being involved in, you know, yeah. the first five years of a child's life, the privilege mm-hmm. of, you know, working aside, alongside other amazing educators mm-hmm. to do these amazing things. The job itself mm-hmm. is not the issue and the job. And what I always say, I'm not advocating for the job to be easier because I think mm-hmm. children's learning is complex, but yeah. the educators need to be valued for that work yes. and that, that they're yeah. supported to do it. Yeah, and, and understandings that in order for them to do this complex, difficult work, you know, they need to be well. And that's not their fault if they're not, but that it's everybody's responsibility to do something about that. Um, and again, I, I don't say that kind of and just walk away. But what I'm, you know, what we're trying to do in our research is to get the hard data that we'll, we can give to politicians to say, this many educators in Australia, which is 10% of all educators, this is how they are. We reckon it's probably pretty representative. 
we need to help these people if you want them to help families be in the workforce and it, children to have their right to high quality education and to get, you know, there's, there's a fair bit writing on educators' work, yeah. you know, from many different perspectives. And But absolutely, if we really care about being child-centred, about doing the very best for children and families, then we have to start taking it really seriously that educators' wellbeing is, is important for us to look at. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. Thanks to our guest for this episode, Dr. Tamara Cumming. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.